0: Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real-world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years.
1: Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, Senior Attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are investigating the rise of digital nomads, a growing trend that I am personally fascinated by, where individuals take their job with them as they travel the world. Did I get that right, Adam?
0: Absolutely, Lauren. Digital nomading is like the highest plane of the work from home culture, okay? You pull out your bucket list, your passport, your laptop, and you pray for good Wi-Fi.
1: Sign me up. Nerds, that's my trusty producer there, Adam Belmar. Adam, you found us a certified digital nomad. To speak with today, Josh Andrews, who is going to join us in just a few minutes from Medellin, Colombia.
0: Josh Andrews is a grizzled veteran digital nomad. I mean, to the extent you can be at this point. His day job, as they say, Lauren, is director of people and culture at Remote Year, a leading company that enables digital nomads to get started, do their jobs, learn the lifestyle. And Josh is going to share his personal experiences in travel and work and what he's hearing from his growing network of digital nomad friends.
1: Perfect. I have so many questions. However, I do want to start and share a personal follow-up with everyone to the episode we did back in March on author Alejandra Oliva's new book, Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. It turns out that some of you out there listening cannot wait to read the book too. And actually, I'm thinking specifically of my mother-in-law who has gone and pre-purchased a number of books for the whole family. It is going to be our book of the month for our family book club.
0: You know, that is just amazing. I was saying to you right before we took to the air today, Lauren, that the hard copy of Rivermouth just landed in my mailbox, and I am so excited. Of course, when you and I went through the book the first time, it was all highlighters, annotations, and I've been dying to be able to share this book with people and let them feel the strength of these words and really give us some grounding at this time when a lot is going on in the border, Lauren.
1: And so that is a timely reminder that you can pre-register, pre-order for Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration. Truly an incredible read, I'm sure, for all of us immigration nerds.
0: Well, Lauren, I love that you brought it up and that I could share a little bit too. And I, I wanted to make sure that we recognize that May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month.
1: Absolutely, Adam. Immigration nerds, be advised. And Adam, you've linked some wonderful exhibits and resources from the National Gallery of Art, the Library of Congress, and the Smithsonian Institute in the show notes. What can you tell us about those?
0: Yeah, Lauren, uh, if everybody points their browser to AsianPacificHeritage.gov, you're going to find a compendium of all of the great things that are being done at places like you mentioned, the Library of Congress, the National Archives and Records Administration here in the U.S., and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. They're all paying tribute to the generations of Asian and Pacific Islanders who've enriched American history and are instrumental in our future. One of the things I wanted to highlight for people is Brave Space, and it's a compilation of original songs and sounds and meditations created by Asian-American women. And you can check all of that out, Lauren, through the Library of Congress. They're also bringing together Grammy Award-winning American Roots artists Kathy Fink and Marcy Marxer. And in addition to that, Lauren, the National Museum of Asian Art is culminating a two-week festival celebrating Asian art and cultures of the past, present, and the future, This is all on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It is available digitally, as I say, asianpacificheritage.gov. A lot of those links are in our show notes, and it's just a wonderful celebration of art, culture, literature, history, and our future, and how important all of us are together as immigrants here in the United States, Lauren.
1: It truly is, and clearly too much to fit within one month too much to fit within this one podcast, so thank you for making those resources available for all of our nerds out there. All right, nerds, now it's time to call in our news nerd-in-chief, Rob Taylor. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Rob. That's Ericsson Immigration Group partner, Rob Taylor, everyone. Now, there are a number of important updates that we need to cover today, Rob.
2: Absolutely. I think the biggest and most important thing is On May 11th, the US declared an end to the COVID-19 national public health emergency. So this has a lot of implications for several different immigration-related matters.
1: And what do they include?
2: So most uh, significantly, it was announced that Title 42 COVID-related restrictions will no longer be in effect. For those of you listening, you may recall, we we did a podcast a few months ago on Title 42. So if you want a very in-depth understanding of this situation, you can go back and listen. For those of you who want a very short explanation, Title 42 was enacted essentially to allow the government to limit the entry of goods and people into the U.S. to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. But in March of 2020, the Trump administration used its authority under Title 42 to rapidly expel migrants from the U.S. in an effort to avoid what they called congregate settings where COVID could be easily spread. But the actual effect of this was the government was using it as a means to turn away migrants at the border. So with the end of the COVID-19 emergency also comes the end of title 42 in order to to limit migrants from crossing the border Uh, we do expect and and have already seen some litigation challenging this um, in order to restrict travel and restrict entry of migrants into the country Uh, but there's still i think a lot to happen and a lot to be said before we actually see how this will play out i don't know lauren from your side being the uh, title 42 expert like what are your thoughts on this
1: I think that this situation is something that is going to continue to mature. It's going to change in terms of the impact and implications for you know U.S. as a country and also immigrants coming in through the border. So it's a hot topic that I know as immigration nerds here, we're going to continue to keep up to date with and provide further information for our nerds out there listening.
2: Yeah, very good point. It'll be interesting to see how things develop, especially with regards to you know individuals who have the right and ability to apply for asylum at the border, and you know that's essentially been taken away from them since the implementation of Title 42. So definitely more to come there. Uh, also related to the end of COVID 19 was another announcement by DHS that said that international air travelers to the U.S. are now no longer to be required to be fully vaccinated or provide proof of vaccination. So that should open up the, uh, the borders a little bit and allow a little bit easier travel in and out of the U.S.
1: Thanks, Rob. And I know that there's been some developments regarding I-9 verifications for those who are employed within the U.S. What do you have an update on that?
2: So in addition to DHS's announcement about travel, they also provided an announcement on the I-9s, as you mentioned. Uh, specifically, again, back in 2020, uh, DHS implemented a temporary exception that allowed for the I-9 form to be completed virtually. Uh, it was understood that that I-9 would later need to be re-verified in person. Uh, In September of 2020, DHS reminded employers if you're using this virtual option, this is gonna sunset, uh, you should be aware that you're going to have to re-verify people in person. And then with the announcement of of COVID-19 emergency ending on May 11th, uh, it was further stated that as of July the 31st, uh, you will no longer be able to virtually complete I-9s and also any I-9s completed during this time virtually will now need to be reverified by August 31st. So for companies that have been using this exception over the last three years, uh, they have a pretty short window now in order to re-verify any I-9 that was completed virtually. So there's gonna be, a, I think, a lot of scrambling in order to uh, accommodate these uh, new provisions and new requirements from DHS.
1: So let's turn our view to the global immigration news.
2: Yeah, so I think the, the most significant update globally is in relation to Australia. So they have just announced that they're going to be expanding their pathways to permanent residency. They've laid out a framework that's actually pretty similar to a framework that they had in place prior to 2018 when they went through some immigration reform. And so under this new framework, they're looking at allowing folks to qualify without necessarily having to meet a certain occupational list. And they're also trying to shorten the time uh, by which individuals can qualify for permanent residency down to two years. So this isn't expected to go into effect probably until the end of the year. So there's going to be more to come with regards to the specifics and the provisions. We will continue to monitor this and continue to provide updates as they become available.
1: Definitely. I think we will look to connect with our counterparts in Australia to bring, you know, a more in-depth analysis in relation to this huge immigration change from out of Australia. That was our immigration news. Now for some Ericsson immigration news.
2: Yeah, so it's been announced that one of our partners, Alejandra Zapatero, has been recognized as a lawyer of distinction. So this is a great accomplishment for Alejandra as well as EIG. Uh, I've worked with her for many years. I already knew she was a lawyer of distinction. But to be able to obtain this on a national scale is is pretty awesome for her as well as the firm. As our reputation continues to grow within the industry, uh, we're glad to see lawyers such as Alejandra recognized for their great work.
1: She is definitely a certified immigration nerd. Congratulations, Alejandra. That was our news nerd, Rob Taylor. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Lauren. now for a conversation about what it means to be a digital nomad in the year 2023 is it right for you where could you go and what kind of jobs make it possible here to help us define terms and better understand the lifestyle and promise of digital nomading is josh andrews welcome to the immigration nerds podcast josh
3: thank you very much for having me i'm very uh, excited to be here
1: josh you're joining us today from medellin colombia how long has that been your home and office?
3: Yeah, so um, I've actually only been here for about two weeks. Uh, so the, the kind of lifestyle I live is that I don't have a home and I typically spend like one to three months in a place. Um, so I'll be here for a couple more weeks and then on to Mexico for a bit.
1: And Josh, as I understand it, you grew up in Oklahoma and received your bachelor's degree from the University of Central Oklahoma. What opened your eyes to the possibilities of becoming a digital nomad?
3: I got to a point when I was 25 years old where uh, I had a bout with leukemia and basically caused me to reevaluate what I wanted out of life. And first part of that was a career change from restaurants into finishing my degree and getting into people and culture. And then second part was that I wanted to see more of the world and to understand more of the different places and the people in it.
1: And so obviously a very marked situation for you led you to explore the possibility of a different lifestyle, both for how you live and how you work. What reasons do you hear from the folks you help at Remote Years as to why they want to try Digital Nomad? Yeah, I think it's it,
3: it can be similar or different. I think we see a lot of different life circumstances that lead to it. So, you know, it could be somebody with a situation like mine where they, you know, overcame something and wanted to change their life. Uh, We see, you know, divorcees, empty nests, um, you know, changing jobs, ending a relationship, or it could just be like that they had this urge, saw an Instagram ad and said, I wanna travel more. Um, So I think it's kind of a variety of things, depends on each person.
1: So you touched a little bit upon, I guess, the diverse demographics of the clients, I guess you see at Remote Year how diverse is that cohort? You mentioned individuals that may have had a similar life experience. It could be individuals going through massive changes. Do you think that that diversity sure. is continuing or has had a large push from the end or I guess the start of COVID-19 kind of affording people that opportunity?
3: Yeah, I would, I would definitely say it has. Um so pre-pandemic i would say like we were much more skewed towards um like freelancers or self-employed people and then now of course like most of the people in the world have had the opportunity to work remotely over the past couple of years and because of that they're more they're more open to traveling and i i'd say what we've seen in our demographics since then is that it's just gotten diverse in like every way you could measure diversity are. Our youngest participants are around 21 years old, our oldest uh, upwards to, I think we've had somebody 77 years old on the program this year. And we normally average somewhere around like high 30s, low 40s for like a median.
1: And I think that's a key thing, you know, before COVID, what I was told was that individuals who pursued digital nomading were mainly risk takers who really wanted something other than a traditional lifestyle. I think the lessons for many industries and many individuals in during COVID and post COVID was that we had to pivot to simply being work from home or everyone being digital nomads even within their current jobs. And so you've been doing this for five and a half years. From your perspective, did COVID see a huge shift in what we kind of understand as digital nomading and who we see doing or becoming digital nomads?
3: Yeah, I think you could definitely say that. I think like just the different variety of people that are more interested in trying it now. And then I think the other thing for us, is what we've seen is there's a lot more people that are willing to do it for maybe one month at a time, and maybe they're gonna go do it, you know, three times throughout the year, split in different quarters. A lot of companies now have work from home policies where they can do like one month remotely a year. Um, And so I think that's where we've really seen it change. It used to be maybe people were just traveling full time like I do, but now there's this mix of like, somewhere between full-time traveling and a couple months at a time.
1: And so does that mean, I guess, from your perspective that you've seen a change in the different industries that are allowing people to have those digital nomad experiences? For example, I come from the legal profession where we were fully in office, but due to COVID-19, we did have to pivot and now we do offer remote work locations or remote work opportunities. Has the industries changed from potentially being maybe the typical uh, industry that we saw was maybe like in the engineering or the technical side now expanding to other fields or other employment?
3: Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, I think we always saw like a small amount of a variety of industries before, but I would definitely see that's expanded a lot um, over the the last year or two. Um, and, And you see just about every industry impacted in some way. We actually, our CEO was at a conference this week where She was speaking to some women firefighters who are considering the product when they can take leave because they can take leave for up to a month. So an industry you never would think you would have on the road for a month.
1: Yeah. Wow. And so you're currently in Colombia. You mentioned that, you know, you just recently appeared in Colombia. You're moving on in a couple of weeks. Let's talk about location. What is popular and why?
3: Yeah, it's it's really like the. The amount of locations and popularity I feel like has expanded a lot, um, but there, there's, you know, a few places that I think have done it really well or just have large digital nomad communities that people tend to flock to a little bit. Uh, I would definitely say Medellin is one of those. A couple other main ones like Lisbon, Mexico City, a variety of places in Thailand, Cape Town, South Africa. I think are are kind of the main ones that we see people kind of congregating to, um, but it, it also expands. I think I think the people that have been doing it longer are now seeking like more diverse or challenging places to go to that maybe they wouldn't have gone to before because now there's more people in the the busier cities and they want to go somewhere else that's a little more like cutting edge now.
1: And we do see that there is constantly more and more countries embracing the option of a digital nomad, Spain being one of the most recent ones to announce a digital nomad visa. Can you comment on how various countries are adapting to or actually leveraging the digital nomad trend?
3: Really, it's the smartest thing they can do, right? Um, I think both countries and like we've seen cities do it in different ways, basically over the last two years. And like, It's really like, we used to be like companies and where they were established was what attracted people to cities. And now there's this opportunity to attract people to your city, regardless of where they work. And so, yeah, I think the the digital nomad visa is a no-brainer for countries. And then you see in the U.S. Even there's cities like Tulsa that are doing programs where they will pay you to move to their city because they want to try to bring more people in and add to their local economy. So...
1: In relation to that, I think it's, again, that lesson from COVID-19 was many people left big cities or a lot of countries that you know relied upon tourism as a, a main form of income and employment for local populations. Digital nomad visas or the digital nomad trend is a huge draw card for them. And so, as you said, I think it is a key reason as to why this is is a trend and we likely will see more and more countries and as you mentioned cities within the US embracing digital nomads. With that it leads into a question as to do you have any data or any insights into the number of people either within the US utilizing the digital nomad trend or Americans leaving America for other countries?
3: Yeah, I wouldn't say like necessarily we have data as to the people that are taking advantage of these digital nomad visas, just because our platform is a month at a time in different places. But I could tell you currently our client base is probably somewhere around 75% U.S. and then the rest spread across other countries. So we're, we're definitely seeing a large amount of U.S. clients wanting to go travel outside of the U.S.,
1: I think those numbers are still a lot to go off. And I get from the formal work visa perspective, there are some 54 nations that now offer some form of digital nomad visas. Uh, According to Tracy Johnson, aka Nomad Girl on Twitter, the United Arab Emirates is now seeing competition between Abu Dhabi and Dubai over their remote work visa programs. Would you agree or could you state that this is now more than just a trend?
3: Yeah, no, I think it's definitely if you want to be competitive as a a city or a country to try to attract digital nomads, you're going to have to think of ways to make it advantageous for them. Um, And I think there's kind of for us, there's a couple populations of people, right? There's people like me that keep traveling. There's people that go back to the US after they travel. And then there's people that go somewhere and find it to be an amazing city and say, okay, how can I stay here for for longer or for forever? Um, and, And the visas definitely allowed that.
1: And I think that's a key word, competitive. What I see and what I hear from friends who are in recruitment and even just looking at trends of how our clients recruit top talent is that to be competitive in today's employment market, you have to offer options for remote work and possibly even the option to be a digital nomad. With that, you know, I think the trend of digital nomad or, you know, the options of digital nomad has continued to increase. What do you think are some of the, not necessarily the bars, but the challenges with being a digital nomad? I think
3: the biggest thing that our our clients maybe struggle with is like adjustment to that lifestyle and like being on the move. And I think there's a variety of things that impact that, right? There's traveling and trying to balance like working and enjoying all of the the things that you want to see in that city which is why we we put our programs at a month because it gives you more time to kind of slow travel and do that um, but then there's you know adjusting to different cultures uh, adjusting to creating a new habit and routine in a new place and um, a lot of other things that kind of go into it.
1: I guess from your experience have you found where you have been a digital nomad in different countries that the local population has been welcoming to your presence? Uh, Yeah, I
3: think it definitely depends. And it depends on like, how this trend impacts each place. And a lot of that has to do with how the government um, treats people coming into the city. And uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. There's plenty of countries that are very welcoming. And then there's plenty of cities where maybe it might be seen as as having a a negative impact on the local economy or something. So definitely depends case by case. (laughs)
1: And then I guess in terms of actually getting the digital nomad visa, are you able to provide any insight as to kind of what that process involves or how hard it is? What kind of, you know, evidence you may require to be considered a digital nomad?
3: What I can say is what it seems like is that most countries are trying to make it as easy as possible to get a digital nomad visa because that barrier to getting it is, is going to determine whether or not people come and stay in their country and kind of contribute to the local economy.
1: And so as I understand it, with your particular services, you are looking at that shorter period of time for one month. How many people are you seeing who have that month experience of wanting another month and then another month or are individuals constantly coming back um, embracing the digital nomad lifestyle?
3: Yeah, we definitely see a lot of customers that are are repeat buyers that are interested in either like continuing to travel to multiple locations uh, with us and continue to like, see what that experience is like. And then some definitely find a place and they're just happy there. And they're like, okay, um, you know, I want to spend more time here. And that's where some of those more popular cities I mentioned, like Cape Town is one that typically we see a lot of customers will do one month with us there and then maybe they just want to stay there for a few months afterwards because it kind of it's it's hard to get there. But once you're there, it's like it's beautiful. I kind of want to stay for a while.
1: I could definitely appreciate that the flight back to Australia is very far. And when many people want to travel and like you need at least a month, if not longer. Uh, so I can, I can appreciate once you're there wanting to stay and obviously the beauty and the culture there is also incredible. So Josh, you know, as we look at your career and, and where you currently are, where you may be heading next, where can we find you in another five years' time? Yeah, I think
3: that's an interesting question because people always ask me, like, I've been traveling for five years. When am I going to stop? Um, <laughs> and I, I don't really see a period of time where I, I stop traveling. What I've kind of moved a little more to myself is that I I find myself spending a little more time in some places, so maybe I'm staying three months. I, I just before Colombia was three months in Buenos Aires, so I kind of am slowing down a little bit in that way, but also still continuously wanting that going to a new place and getting a new experience. So, no plan to stop just yet.
1: <laughs> is there a country that is top of the list for where to go next?
3: Um, so we're actually launching uh, our for the first time in uh, in India in October uh, in Goa, and so I've never been to India. It's been at the top of my list for a while now, so uh, my plan is to try to get there either in October or November and and stick around for a couple of months and get to see a a new country that's very different than any country I've been to before, so.
1: And then before we let you go, maybe a recommendation of your favorite place that you've been so far.
3: Oof, that's really tough. I always tell people, like, I don't have favorite places because I'm the kind of person that falls in love with everywhere I go. But maybe i can just share like some things uh buenos aires i just spent three months there and it's an incredible city beautiful architecture it's a city with so much to do in the arts like the nightlife the food you can't be bored in buenos aires so i could definitely recommend that as one of my favorites
1: well buenos aires is definitely on the top of my list maybe adam we can get immigration nerds on the road But Digital Nomad Josh Andrews, Director of People and Culture at Remote Year, thank you for joining us from Medellin, Colombia on the Immigration Nerds podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So Adam, what about taking immigration nerds on the road?
0: Oh, that is one of the best ideas I have ever heard. I'm going to go back and take a look at the budget. But Lauren, I think Buenos Aires could be the place for us to be broadcasting from.
1: Well, I think for many of our listeners, the lessons from COVID-19 was digital work or the ability to work from home has been made possible and many of us may actually be working from home and so that's just one step closer to this digital nomad life in going outside of the US.
0: I didn't know a lot about this when we brought the topic up in one of our editorial meetings and when I started to become familiar with digital nomading I reached out to remote year and of course this entire lifestyle is predicated Lauren on having a job and being able to take it with you and then Your intrepid nature could take you anywhere. And if you need help in doing that, there are people like Remote Year out there who are giving you the opportunity to get started, find a location with a support system, a network of people, even a place to do your remote work from.
1: So the world really is our oyster. And you nerds out there, you definitely know that. So thank you for listening. You can track everything going on at Erickson Immigration Group on our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.